Good morning, Journey. Welcome here. I'm excited to be with you today. And I want to introduce you to one of your family members, someone who you may or may not even know about. It's, it's really interesting, but our heritage as believers has this long, long history of just amazing, amazing people of faith. And one of those is a gal named Corey Ten Boom. Corey's picture will pop up on stage here. And, and some of you may know her story, some of you may not, but let me just share a little bit about what this amazing woman of faith did during her lifetime. Prior to World War II, she was leading youth Bible studies in her home and in her area. She ultimately uh, was very involved with the mentally handicapped. And this is like the 40s when stuff like that was just, just taboo. Um, missionaries at the time, because it was deemed dangerous when, when the parents went overseas to certain countries, missionary kids, they, they would be left behind. And Corey and her family would take those kids in. They would make sure that they had education and food. And they were just taken care of and loved on them. All these things she was doing. Then the war came and interrupted her life and everything else like it did for everybody. Eventually, the Nazis invade the Netherlands, where she was from. And when the Nazis invaded the Netherlands, it became apparent right away that there were going to be issues around those that were of Jewish heritage. And so Corey and her family built kind of this like private hidden room in their home. And they began to take in Jewish families that were trying to run away from the Gestapo and they would hide them in their home and they would find ways to feed them and do all these just amazing things. There was a word on the street in her town that the Gestapo was going to raid an orphanage at one point and they were just going to slaughter a hundred Jewish babies. So she was part of a resistance group that went in and actually broke in to an orphanage, if that makes any sense. She broke into an orphanage and they stole those hundred babies and hid them from their Nazi aggressors. Wouldn't be too long after that, that someone uh, kind of remotely connected to the family would actually betray them to the Nazis. She, her sister, and her father were all arrested. Her father was sent to a, a men's prison where ultimately he would perish her sister and her were being interrogated in a women's facility during which Corey's actually trying to share her faith with her interrogator. The two of them would be shipped off to Ravensbrook concentration camp where they would spend the next couple of years. And while at Ravensbrook, they would be marched around in the nude. They would be beaten by their guards they lived in this effectively a dormitory that was designed, it's just a big room, but it was designed for 200 women prisoners. There were over 700 captives that were in there and they would just sleep on straw and the straw was infested with fleas and, and lice and their living conditions were horrendous. But all the while, every evening, Corey and her sister would lead that group of people in Bible study in hymns, in prayer. They would even pray for their captors. So she's obviously a whole lot better than I am as a believer. Her faith just was absolutely coming out of every pore, despite the fact that she was living in hell. After the war, Corey, uh, her sister actually died in the concentration camp. And after the war, she went out and she started a group home. 
And originally the group home's intent was specifically to help rehabilitate Dutch citizens who had been Nazi sympathizers and were now obviously ostracized with the Nazi defeat and needing to be brought back in to their society. After that, she met with the gentleman who had betrayed her family and ultimately caused her sister and her father's death and forgave him. She even went so far as to actually travel to Germany, live at a different concentration camp that was being used as a homeless shelter for German citizens who didn't have a home because of Allied bombing. Can you imagine doing all of that in your lifetime? Shortly thereafter, Corey came to the United States and she began a pretty prestigious speaking tour around not just the US, but even the world. And she hired a young lady who was a fresh graduate of college to be her assistant. And her assistant tells all kinds of amazing stories about Corey. But the one I want to bring to your attention is counter to everything I've already told you about her. Corey had a little bit, just a little bit of, a, of, a, of an anger issue. And at times she took out her frustration on her assistant. The cool thing about her was she recognized her failure and she'd repent and, and come back to her, to, her, to her assistant and say, I'm sorry and, and I'll do better, et cetera, et cetera. But even someone who lived out their faith so majestically for us to see as such a great witness had those faults and needed repentance, needed to seek forgiveness from those around her. And that's kind of where we're going this morning is we, we're going to talk a little bit about what does it look like for us to need repentance, even though we might be doing a lot of things that we should be doing in our Christian faith. So the passage, the parable, is in Matthew 21, if you want to pull out your paper Bible or your digital Bible. And let me just give you the context. It's Passion Week. It's 24 hours before Jesus will be arrested, about 36 before he'll be nailed to the cross. And right now, Jesus is spending all of his time during Passion Week in the temple court teaching to the crowds and the people but the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, they keep coming up. They're trying to catch him in his words. They're trying to find an excuse that will allow them to execute him and rid them of him. So as Jesus speaks this parable, understand he is speaking directly to those religious leaders. Here's the words he says. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, Go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. So simple parable, right? There's just two things going on here. The first son is asked to go work in the vineyard to, his, to which he tells his father, his authority. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. Now he recognizes the error of his ways and he repents and he says, okay, I'll go. And he does it. His second son knows what he's supposed to do. Here's the order, says he will obey the order and yet doesn't go. So there's your two Characters. Now, what's interesting is not all of Jesus's parables does he explain 
what he meant. But in this one, we're blessed. He tells us exactly what he meant in verses 31 and 32. He says, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Remember his audience? Religious leaders, the fair, like the prostitutes and the tax collectors are better off than you religious leaders. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe them. So the first son represents this group of people that aren't supposed to be religious, right? The tax collectors and the prostitutes. And those people have repented of their ways. They lived a certain way. It wasn't the way they should have. They recognize that and they respond to the call of John the Baptist to repent and, and correct their ways. The religious leaders are likened to the second son, the ones that know everything, right? They, they know Bible, they know Torah, and yet they don't actually live it out. Now, the reference to John the Baptist takes us to Matthew 3. And in Matthew 3, John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And that's the simple call that John had that Jesus then carried forward into his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Now, there are kind of two ways repentance plays out. The, the most common way, and, and, and if you're someone who's sitting here this morning and you're checking out Jesus' thing or you're maybe not quite sure or whatever your position is, this is how most people would view repentance and kind of talk about it. That repentance is a path to coming to faith. In other words, at some point, I recognize that something's not right and I pray a prayer and I now become a believer or a person of faith and I repent of my past. Now, how do we get to that? Well, let me just tell you in four statements. I'm going to summarize the entire Bible, like 2,000 pages, 66 authors, in four statements. Page one, God created. Page two, God created man and woman in his image, and his, his ability to have relationship with them then exists. And they are in a perfect symbiotic relationship where man and God walk through the Garden of Eden and everything is great. Page three, man screws everything up. Sin enters the world, the relationship is broken. And that's the key thing to understand. The whole problem with, with everything that's happened since page three is that our relationship with God is broken. Because page four to the end is God's redemptive plan, his, his continual effort, his never-ending outreach to bring people to himself, to restore relationship. And that relationship is restored with repentance when we recognize, hey, I'm part of the problem. I've created the broken relationship with the things I've said, I've done, the acts I've committed, and I want to repent of that. I want, and all repentance is, is a church word that means change your behavior. I just want to change my direction, change my behavior. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about kind of repentance as, a, as an avenue to faith. The, the way I would also, though, want us to 
position repentance is that, yes, it is 100% a path to faith, but true repentance is an acknowledgement also of what God has done for me now that I am on this side of that decision. That repentance is a posture or a stance that I would take before God continually, daily. It's not something that's a one-time deal and I'm done and I move on. Think about what Jesus taught as he was teaching the disciples to pray in Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, he teaches them how to pray. It's the Lord's Prayer. It's the one that if you've ever been to church at all, you've probably heard. But in the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us this day our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, forgive us of the things that we have done wrong so that we can be in right relationship. That God wants us in relationship with him, but that is a stance that we have to take in response. It's not just a one-time deal, I repented. Think of it this way. Kind of a dumb analogy, but you got two brothers. Not those two brothers, but two brothers. Two brothers, 10 and seven. 10-year-old smacks a seven upside the, upside the head, right? Mom sees it, what's he gonna do? He's gonna repent. Oh, yeah, I'm so sorry, it was an accident, I didn't mean to, sure. Right, we all know, we've seen it, right? And so that act of repentance restores relationship with the brothers. That's a good thing. Now, mom turns her back and immediately what's the 10-year-old do again? Whack, got him again. And this time, the brother's like, oh man, you need to repent of that. And the older brother's like, no, I don't need to repent. I already did that once. I'm good. That wouldn't make any sense. Like relationships, whether it's siblings or marriages or family dynamics or work, They are dependent on some sense of repentance, that we are in right relationship, that the relationship isn't broken, if that makes sense to you. And so with all of that, that's your your Bible lesson, that's your theology, that's your, your parable. But what I really want to spend the rest of our time talking about is, what do we do with that? Like here we have these two brothers, right? Or sons, rather. The first son hears the word, listens to the word, doesn't do the word, and yet repents, changes his behavior, and does what he was asked to do. The second son hears the word, it's clear, he says he's going to do it, but there's no actions that follow that knowledge and that understanding. And that's, that's really where I want to spend our time. And like preparing for this, you know, I'm not like Van Epps or, or Schwann. Those guys, can, they can pop out a sermon in probably like 10 minutes. You're like, we could just call them up here and be like, hey, we want you to preach on Revelations 12. They'd be like, got it, no problem. For someone like me, I need, I need a lot of time. And so I've had a few weeks. Bob was generous and he gave me a few weeks to, to mull on this. And one of the, the advantages is I'm able to actually come up with something to say. But the disadvantage of that is I'm sitting here stewing on this concept First brothers, or first son, second son, first son, second son. And I began to just kind of self-reflect a little bit. And I'm thinking about it and I'm going, man, I see those first son tendencies. I see it. Like the times where I do what I, you know, when I, when I say I'm not going to do something or I'm not doing the right thing, like that feels pretty easy to identify. But man, those second son things, those snuck up on me. Those hurt. The times where I knew what I was supposed to do, I was 100% clear, and yet I didn't do it. That one hurt. And so I'm going to bring you along with a little bit of my hurt on that. 
And I, I want you to reflect a little bit as we're talking this morning and just think about what are those, what are those things or principles or times where I've been the first son or I've been the second son? And how can I change that behavior? How can I repent of that and move to my next step? So with that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out a really simple biblical principle, really simple, one that is from literally the beginning to the end of the Bible. These are, these are principles that no one who is an Orthodox Christian would even balk at in the least because they are so woven throughout all of Scripture. And that concept is the idea that we ought to take care of the poor, the orphans, and the widows. Jesus says it, Paul says it, it's all over scripture. And one of the things I want you to think about as you think about the poor, the orphans, and the widows is what do those folks have in common? Why is it that God continually brings that up as we walk through scripture? And I think a big part of it is that's, those are more marginalized people. They are people on the fringes. They are people that feel forgotten. Those are people that feel unloved at times because they have been pushed to the edges of society. They don't fit in the perfect little drawed up American dream life or really any culture life. If the treatment of those folks breaks God's heart when that is not done well, then it ought to break our hearts. It ought to break my heart. If the things that break God's heart don't break my heart, then I probably don't know him very well. I know if my wife, if, 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 if I don't know the things that cause her pain and grief, then, then how, how is that even going to work? How's that relationship going where it needs to be? So let's start with marginalized kids. And man, this is just so hard to talk about, but in Montana right now, today, there are 3,700 kids in foster situations. 3,700 kids. If you take everyone who goes to church in Montana, family units, if you take every family unit in Montana, one out of 50 takes a foster kid in, we don't have a foster system. It goes away. Because there would be no need for it because there are no kids in foster care. Think about that. One out of 50, we're not talking like everybody's got to participate. One out of 50 families Stepped up. Now, what does that mean like a journey? That would be like 12 to 15 families at journey. 12 to 15 families at journey step up and take care of a foster kid to help a marginalized kid. That is being the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, and, and when we think about being the hands and feet of Jesus and actually acting on this, there, there's kind of two, uh, two things in tension. One is my individual responsibility. I have an individual responsibility to help marginalized kids. Okay, I have that, but we have that corporately as well. And in the United States, when we live in the church, we often live in a very individualistic situation. And we say, well, that's not my responsibility because someone else will take care of it. And I would say, yeah, no, you do have an individual responsibility to that, but we also have a corporate responsibility as well. Think about uh, young boys who are growing up in, in a single family or single mom situation, right? Praise to those singles moms. They are killing it. They are busting tail. But 
those young boys, if they don't have another family member who steps up, a, a male family member, they may not have a male figure in their life. So men out there, how many of you could grab a kid and take them fishing? Grab a kid and teach him how to hunt. Take him to a Bobcat football game. Or, or just teach him the things that God has taught you in the word. Like walking along with that child who's on the edges, who doesn't have a dad to go to you know, the thing at school when dads are there. Like where can we step up and actually be the hands and feet of Jesus? Uh, widows. Take widows, for example. So... My wife has met uh, with kind of a mentor woman for a long time, several years. Um, That woman was recently widowed within the last year, year and a half. And they were having coffee uh, probably a month ago. And the widow is lamenting over the fact that um, when her husband passed, he was in the middle of all these different projects and the garage is a total train wreck and she doesn't know what to do with any of it. And it's all too heavy to move and you can kind of get the picture. And so Kristen's like, dude, we'll take care of that. Like, we'll come over and we'll clean your garage. So a couple Saturdays ago, we spent a few hours and we just cleaned her garage and put away stuff and got it where it needed to be. What was most interesting about that, converse, or about that time and that conversation wasn't the cleaning of the garage. It was what she said as we were kind of getting ready to leave. And that was that she is part of a, another church, another congregation in town. And what what she has experienced since she became a widow was this, that when they have their small group, which has met for years and years and years and years, like she is fully integrated and a part of that. But as soon as it goes to a social type situation, she's not invited because she's not a couple. And so she's marginalized. Single moms uh, are, you know, in, in many ways, like you wouldn't have had single moms in the first century because the only way you have a single mom in the first century is she's widowed. Um, that just wasn't a thing. But in our culture, single moms have a lot of the same challenges that widows have in that they're pushed to the edges at times. So those of you that are couples or, or just what, whoever you are, like what can you do to help a single mom? Can, can you take her kids, you know, for the day and just let her have a day? Or could you go, you know, wash her car, fix her car, could you, uh, you know, just do things that are loving acts to help her know that she's not out here on the margins, that she's part of this greater family we call the church. What about the poor? Um, there are so many groups in the valley that are trying to deal with the poor, that are trying to help out, whether that's, you know, Family Promise or Love, Inc., Fork and Spoon, the Warming Shelter, um, HRDC, uh, the Gallatin Valley Food Bank. I mean, like you can just name all these groups, right? Where is your opportunity to step in and help? Where is your opportunity to make a difference, to obey what you already know? Because kind of what we're talking about here is that second stun stuff. There's no one here who's been a believer for, for any length of time that does not know that we are to take care of the poor the needy and the widows. But the question is, are we doing it? Or are we the second son? Are we just saying, yeah, I know it's in there, but somebody else will do it. I I don't necessarily have to be the one that steps into that gap. And the challenge I'm asking you today is to step into that gap. You see, there, there are two types of sin. The first sin is the most common thing that we recognize. That's the sin of commission. Commission as in commit. 
right? Like if I steal something, I have committed sin. I have done something, right? If I lie, I have committed sin. I have done something. And we as the church are, we get A plus at pointing out sin. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. We're really good at that. We have no trouble finding people in sin, especially the sin of commission. But the sin of omission, that's the sneaky one. That's the one we don't like to talk about too much, especially if the world calls us hypocrites. We're not hypocrites. Well, but the Bible says you're supposed to take care of the poor, needy, and the widows. Are you doing that? And that's just one example. I mean, we could go through all kinds of scriptures and point to the things that Jesus himself told us we were to do, to point to the things that, that Paul told us we were to do, or Peter, or the Old Testament prophets. Like, we have been given some very clear things that we are to do. And as we walk, we need to do them. Or we commit the sin of omission. And as I have prepared, I, I told you, like when I was thinking about the second son stuff, man, it was always omission. It was always not doing something that I knew I was supposed to do. Like, let's be real. Like that's, that's the deal. That's the dirty little thing we don't want to talk about, right? Like it's super easy again when someone does something, boop, I saw that you committed sin. But when you don't do something, it can be just as bad. It can be just as damaging. That's, that's what the religious elite were doing. Like, that's what Jesus called him out for. Like, he's like, hey, you guys are supposed to be the guys that know what to do. And yet, these prostitutes and tax collectors, they're the ones that are doing it. And so that's our challenge this morning. You know, we're like theology, Bible studies, all that stuff is awesome. Do it. We got podcasts. We got a million sermons. You can go listen to 100,000 sermons better than this one on, on a podcast in the next hour. But all that theology and everything else without practicality and without actually doing it is completely and totally worthless. You've got to do it. Francis Chan is a, a pastor, California, a guy I, I really, really admire and love his books and, and his preaching. But he makes this statement. He says, the theology that matters is not the theology that you profess, but is the theology that you practice. It's the things that we do. Um, love is a verb. Repentance is a verb. And we may need to do some self-looking today and say, what are the things I need to repent of? What, what are the sins of omission that I have left on the table that I'm not paying attention to? There's a kind of a, a rhetorical conversation with God that uh, is unattributed. There's a lot of people that claim they said it, but I didn't attribute it because I don't know who said it, but I think it's really good. Sometimes I want to ask God why he allows poverty, famine, injustice in the world when he could do something about it. Clearly, this God who created everything is all powerful. He could, he could wipe out poverty in a heartbeat. Why doesn't he do that? But I'm afraid he might just ask me the same question. We are called to action. And I'm going to give you a little, like, little rant. This, this, this little thing we got in society over the last few years, uh, random acts of kindness, heard of it? Such garbage, total garbage. 
Hate it, hate it. Not because you're doing something kind, but what I hate about it is this idea that it's a random act. If you're a believer and your idea is random acts of kind, I'm just gonna randomly do something. I would challenge you, you need to step up. You need to be doing intentional acts of love. We need to find ways to love those in our community. We need to be intentional. I need to pray, God, put me in a position where I could impact a widow. Put me in a place where I could help the poor. Put me in a place, Lord, convict my heart that I would look for an opportunity to bless a child who's marginalized. The idea that it would be random, random I just can't live with. And so let me put those, this, this all into some numbers to give you an idea of what, what we're talking about here. If you took every person who is listening to this conversation this morning, first service, second service, online, um, and if, if we took every single person and we had them do two intentional acts of love a month between now and Christmas. It's about four months. I'm not asking you to do, you know, 50 things a day. I'm talking two things a month where you make an intentional act of love toward an orphan, a widow, or a marginalized child. What would that do? Well, I can tell you mathematically, it would lead to 25,000 intentional acts of love. Just this group, just journey. I'm not talking about the other dozens of churches in Bozeman or the dozens or hundreds of churches across the state or the thousands and thousands of churches across the country. I'm just saying journey could make a difference of 25,000 intentional acts of love just by two a month for four months. And if you think about it, the first Easter happened and everybody knows those dudes. They were impacted by the resurrected Lord. And that impact led to a transformation of the Roman world and culture. Like you, 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 we think of hospitals as normal, didn't exist before the resurrection. We think of orphanages as a thing, never existed before the resurrection. Those are believers who said, I will make a difference. They acted. So what I'd like to do is make you slightly uncomfortable if I haven't already. I want to take one minute, 60 seconds, and Carrie's going to help me out. And we're going, to, we're going to just have a nice, quiet atmosphere. And I'm going to ask you to just go inside your own head and heart. Pray, reflect, maybe repent. And just think about what we're talking about here. First son, second son. Am I doing the things that I know I'm supposed to do? Or am I ignoring the things that I know I'm supposed to do? So we're just going to give you 60 seconds to think about that. It's going to feel like an eternity because we never stop. Like our phones are always moving. But 60 seconds, and then we're going to close things out from there. So ready, go.
Amen. I'm going to leave you with this thought. If your presence doesn't make an impact, your absence won't make a difference. If your presence doesn't make an impact, your absence won't make a difference. Pray with me, church. Father God, I pray that you would forgive us of our inactivity. I pray that you would use your spirit to alert us to our sin of omission, Lord. Help us not to be the religious elite. Help us not to be the second son. Help us to seek you honestly and openly. I pray, Lord, that you would just put us in a position to reflect on that this week. Give us time and space to think about how we might impact those that are marginalized and those that are in need in our valley, in our communities. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for engaging with this content. If it was encouraging to you, we'd love for you to leave a review. Hit that subscribe button and share this content with others. We'd also love to connect with you. The best place to do that is journeyweb.net. Don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search Journey Church Bozeman and you'll find us there. If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that now at journeyweb.net slash give. Once again, thanks for engaging with Journey Church.